You're listening to the Risk Takers podcast series coming to you from Chesley Brown headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. Helping businesses explore better ways to anticipate and navigate risk before it becomes a crisis since 1990. I'm your host, Brent Brown, Chairman and CEO of Chesley Brown Companies, and joining me this week is my very special guest, Bradley W. Orsini. Uh, Brad joined the FBI back in 1988. Uh, now he is currently uh, the Senior National Security Advisor for the Secure Community Network, which is the official safety and security organization for the Jewish community. As I always like to start with is, um, you have such a fascinating background, Brad, tell me, how you got interested in the FBI. Yes, sir. Well, I'm happy to be with you today. Uh, I had an interest in the FBI since, gosh, since I was 15 years old. And wow. uh, I, I had the ability to meet an FBI agent through my very first high school girlfriend. And uh, once <laughs> I met this individual and talked to him, I realized that's what I want to do with my life. Wow, you knew it that early, and that was that big of an influence on you that that, that you started planning right then. I, you're absolutely right, and and this gentleman, and he probably has no idea of the impact he had on my life. And I listened to him intently and followed his advice, and and I was very fortunate in 1988 to be selected to. Uh, go to New Agents training class at Quantico, Virginia, to become an FBI agent. So, it, you know, his advice was spot on. I listened to everything he said, and and uh, really, really followed that through all the way through college, and and subsequently, I joined the the Marine Corps as an officer, and wow. and it led that path led me to the FBI. So, yeah, I'm. So glad that you're talking about this because I don't think that we always understand how much of an influence that we can be on other people in their their young lives and 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 sometimes it's you know it's one thing when they come in your office and they they say tell me how I get to be an FBI agent or tell me how I get into corporate security but it's different when you're influencing them and you don't even know they're paying attention. And this is a perfect case of of someone that made such a huge influence on your life, and look where it took you. You, and you are absolutely right, and I am to this day so cognizant of of how he made an impact on me that I always take the time to talk to people that have an interest in law enforcement, have an interest in the FBI or the Marine Corps, and, and really try to help them to guide their decisions because I know how valuable it was for me. And you always want to pay that forward. And I think it's so important to do that in your life. And you're a perfect example of of doing that. I I had a a second cousin when I I wanted to be just a a simple um, demo beat cop. And and I was talking to him. He was with the Secret Service in D.C. And he told me, this is 35 years ago, he said, Brent, you know, being a beat cop is a lot of fun. But don't ever give up your education. Don't ever quit looking forward to, to what else you can do. Uh, and and I did that. And I don't know that he uh, has a clue how much influence he had on 
on my life. Brad, uh, you, you went in the Marine Corps, another one of my favorites. Um, why specifically the Marine Corps? What took you there? Well, when I, when I went to college and I, I went to Penn State University, and I had originally joined Army ROTC in my first year, and then in my second year, as I moved off campus, I would typically walk from class to my apartment. And for those folks who know Penn State, there's a road called Atherton Road. And on Atherton Road at the time was the Marine Corps Officer Selection Office. And I used to walk by that office every day, and I would see a squared away captain standing outside quite often. I'd look at him, i think, holy cow, that guy looks incredibly squared away. And one day I built up the courage to walk in and talk to the captain, and he had me sold hook, line, and sinker. And so it was the next day or the following week, I went back into the Army ROTC office and, and went to the individual who was – uh, kind of had my group and, and told him he was another captain. It was a captain in the Army, and I told him I was leaving and that I was going to join the Marine Corps. And that's exactly what happened. And to this day, I am so glad I did that. And it's, look, I love the Army, and, <laughs> and I respect the Army, but there was something about being a Marine that attracted to me more oh, than anything. Uh, and so, absolutely agree. And so that was uh, the right thing for me. And, and at the time, I didn't know it, but when I joined the FBI, uh, the percentage of FBI agents that were also Marine officers was so high that one of the first days in my office, oh, my God, we got another Marine. you got to join our association. <laughs> and I still have, from 1988, my coffee cup that has – the FBI and the Marine Corps seal, and it says FBI Marine Corps Association. So a big tie <laughs> between the FBI and the Marine Corps as our training facility at, is on a Marine Corps base in Quantico, Virginia. Absolutely. So you felt uh, right at home whenever you went to uh, uh, young agent training at Quantico. Oh, yes, because the officer training was right down the road on Quantico. So I, I spent my summers, uh, what was called platoon leaders class, two summers, uh, with my, my, uh, my vacationing in the summer was a Marine Corps officer camp. So, wow. uh, that's the way I spent my summers, uh, <laughs> you know, having off at Penn State. That's incredible. Well, we want to talk some about the, um, active shooter phenomenon, as I call it, and the, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting. But first, before we get into that, Brad, I'd like to, uh, to hear after Quantico, uh, where the FBI sent you and what you did. Yes, sir. So I was assigned right to the Newark, New Jersey field office, which is a a large field office. And at the time, it was the sixth largest field office in the FBI. And I was assigned to a violent crime squad um, wow. uh, right off the bat. And so uh, that was the height of law enforcement all working together and the FBI kind of unveiling that 
cloak of secrecy, and we really started that task force concept in the 80s and in the 90s, and it really grew in the 90s. So I, I always felt very fortunate to have the ability to kind of grow up as an agent working on a violent crimes task force in Newark, New Jersey, and it was an incredible learning experience working alongside. And these are some of my lifelong friends, the folks I work with on that task force in Newark, uh, you know, whether they were uh, state police from from New Jersey or the Newark right. PD or Essex County Sheriff's Department. Uh, it was an incredible learning experience to work with these great men and women. Wow, that's incredible. So while you were in New Jersey, um, we had the event of uh, 9-11. Um, tell me, well, first of all, I think it's always interesting to hear where you were when the planes started hitting the World Trade Centers. Sure, and it's so it's it's a kind of a strange story, but uh, at the time I was supervising two squads in Newark, and on a, my primary job was uh, with a squad that was the non-traditional organized crime squad, and at that same time we had a supervisor leave for so for about a month and a half, two months I was supervising our drug squad as well. And on the morning of 9-11, the new supervisor for that squad was coming in. And our, both of our offices were on the corner looking uh, in Newark, looking at the World Trade Center. And really? as I'm showing him his office, we're both looking at the World Trade Center saying, holy cow, there's a fire at the World Trade Center. And the next thing we hear is, all supervisors report to the conference room, the special agent in charge conference room, which I think at the time was on the 22nd floor of our, of our building. And we all went up and uh, realized that it, it wasn't an accident, that it was a terrorist attack. And we were all wow. off and running. And uh, at the time, as I was a, the, the supervisor in, a, in the criminal world, and at the time, Keep in mind, the criminal and the national security world were completely separated. Right. And the leader uh, and the supervisor of our terrorism squad, uh, of course, was uh, you know supervising our New Jersey response. And my special agent in charge at the time came to me and said, Brad, you're going to be the co-supervisor along with the terrorism supervisor, and your responsibility will be to handle the searches, the surveillances, the street work, bringing teams out into Jersey City. And our whole goal at the time was trying to pick up the pieces. Uh, all 19 hijackers at some point in time had visited Jersey City, New Jersey. Uh, and so we were doing investigations with hundreds and hundreds of law enforcement officials throughout New Jersey. And you know, daily we would send teams out to, to cover all these leads, uh, to do these searches. And, you know, we, we, you know, turned over every rock, every stone to include wow. things like going out to the hotel where one, you know, the, the flight 93 hijackers were staying the night before they got on the plane. And we did searches of the dumpsters at the, the hotel where we found items of, 
that the hijackers really? discarded. Shavings. We knew what they ate. Uh, we knew where they were just based on the garbage. So I, when I tell you that's how detailed that investigation, how exhaustive that was, that's what gotcha. I spent those first couple weeks doing. And that really, really got me into that that world of crisis management. And when I was eventually transferred to Pittsburgh, which I had a great interest in, uh, and, and started working not just violent crimes, because my career after 28 years was split between violent crimes, gangs, guns, and drugs, and I spent 14 years working public corruption and civil rights. And wow. as I went to Pittsburgh, I became the crisis manager there as uh, in Pittsburgh, where you know we would respond and help facilitate a response to help state and local law enforcement after some kind of mass casualty event or some kind of event that needed more resources than a, maybe a local PD can handle or work in conjunction with those groups. So uh, it was uh, uh, kind of my foray into that kind of world as well. Wow, that's fascinating. And that time had to be a combination of exhilarating and exhausting all at the same uh, and and somewhat surreal. Is it, 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 it was nine eleven. You you couldn't even describe what that was like that day. Working that day as you know all traffic stopped, or even just driving through the Holland Tunnel where right. there's no cars and you're the only person in the Holland Tunnel, and you come out of the other side with smoke-filled debris, and that's, you know, the, the, the burning, the smoke, and right. and just that scene is just beyond comprehension. That's incredible. I, I, was, I was in uh, Tokyo when, when on 9-11, and then coming back, uh, just the surrealness of arriving in the, in the U.S. airports with the, with the military there, and then I was in New York a, a few weeks later and watching at Ground Zero the truck still bringing out the the smoking debris, and I remember yeah. the the smoke and the smell, and so I, I can only imagine when it was you're literally looking out your office and you see it smoking, and then that's what you're doing nonstop for I guess weeks on end, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. So that time from there, it took you back home to Pittsburgh, correct? Uh, you went yes, to sir. Pittsburgh to the FBI office. Yes, sir. Transferred there in 2004 and spent uh, my remaining time until my retirement in December 31st of 2016. My time was spent in the Pittsburgh field office. Wow. So a going home of sorts for you? It it was going home. It was was nice to get home. Uh, At the time, both of my parents were still alive, and my, my kids were able to spend time with their grandparents. So for me, that was a godsend to come back to Pittsburgh at that time to, to be able to spend some time with my folks before they both passed away. That's awesome. That's awesome. So I'm sure you had some, some interesting experiences uh, when the FBI there in Pittsburgh, but we, we want to get to the uh, one of the main reasons that, that I have you on today. I mean, have a, <laughs> Brad, you have such a fascinating career. I could probably do 13 different podcasts with you. <laughs> Thank you, sir. <laughs> but... Um, the, the Tree of Life synagogue shooting, um, you know, we've we've had so many active shooter situations in the last several years. I've I've kind of tagged it as the, the active shooter phenomenon. 
um, not only from from a real perspective, but from a perspective of everybody talking about it and responding to it. But you lived this real life, um, and there's not many people that can that really can claim that. So, first of all, tell me what your position is that with the with the Jewish community. Um, you're their senior national security advisor, correct? And that was started this year. But at the time, you were already involved in the in the community helping with security and consulting, right? Yes, sir. So currently, I work for the Secure Community Network, which is, you know, the uh, the official safety and security organization uh, of the Jewish community in North America. So right. we support every Jewish community uh, throughout throughout the United States, and when I retired from the FBI, I took a position in the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh as their first communal security director. And really, for me at the time, there was really no blueprint on how to develop a communal security program. Now, the job I do now, we're a little more sophisticated. We we work with communities. We have that blueprint. We can help communities establish these these communal security programs. But at the time uh, in Pittsburgh, you know, you're, you're you're kind of on your own. You've had a few colleagues across the country that you rely on, which I relied on heavily. All right. Build a program based on preparedness. And I I do so much active shooter training, and as you are very well aware of, you know, 2014 was really that big year in the active shooter world. After that study was released from the FBI of the analysis of active shooters from the year 2000 to the year 2013, and one of the biggest takeaways was for communities, we need to do a better job nationally at training people on what to do in case of an active shooter. So when I joined the Jewish Federation of Greater Pittsburgh, one of our biggest focus was on preparedness, going into our buildings, uh, working with all our organizations, developing uh, good, sound emergency operation procedures, doing assessments of our facilities, not just of the buildings, but of organizations to make sure that they were situationally aware and and, and really thought about these issues before something bad happened. And so prior to the Tree of Life, our goal was really to train everybody in the Jewish community. There's a little over 50,000 folks who identify as Jewish in the greater Pittsburgh area. My goal was to train every one of them. Right. And so we, we did an aggressive training uh, program. Uh, and so in that first year and a half or so prior to Tree of Life, we trained a little over 6,000 people in 135 separate training sessions, which I conducted, you know, a couple of weeks, three, four a week. At the same time, you know, we would really wanted our community because the rise in anti-Semitism, at the same time, we wanted to make our community aware to report every sign of hate. Right. We wanted to prepare them in case something bad happens. So specifically with the Tree of Life, we went into the uh, Tree of Life building, which is that houses three separate congregations, the Tree of Life congregation, Dor Hadash, and New Light, were three separate and distinct congregations. And 
the Tree of Life is 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 one of these synagogues. It's just big, sprawling, massive building. And uh, years ago, they they started taking on other congregations and, and sharing space. Uh, and so we went in in September of 2017 and, and trained, and we trained all the religious school teachers. Uh, so did you train? Did you train all of the congregations, or is this unusual for one synagogue to house three different congregations, or is that kind of normal now? So yeah, so you know, just like any faith-based group, and this is not unique to the Jewish community. I think right. a lot of organization, a lot of religious and faith-based organizations lose numbers. And Absolutely. And and you know that's a that's a struggle for every faith base, especially to get young people in. So the Jewish community is no different. And so our goal was to train every congregation throughout Pittsburgh. So we have a little over sixty standalone buildings that right. that wow. house probably seventy, eighty different separate organizations. So the goal is to go from organization to organization, building to building, and help develop a conscious culture of security throughout the entire community. And it was really our goal is to train the entire community the same way. And so with the three congregations in Tree of Life, we went in in September of 2017, and we did uh, a training. We did an Alice training, and I'm sure you're familiar, the alert, lockdown, inform, counter-evacuate training right. uh, with the active shooter protocol. And then Prior to the shooting on September 5th, 2018, we went back in the Tree of Life, and I did another training session uh, for leaders of the three congregations uh, there, and we, we focused more on the run, hide, fight protocols and, and just right. really, really focused on uh, kind of that, that run, that evacuation, and that hide part, that enhanced barricade, and and really wanted to teach our community just not to freeze, right? That's so important in the right. active shooter protocol. And, you know, we had discussions with the rabbi at Tree of Life. Look, we didn't have all the bells and whistles there. Uh, we, we need to contact law enforcement as quickly as possible. But culturally, Tree of Life was a conservative synagogue where our rabbi and the congregants wouldn't typically have cell phones with them on the Sabbath, on Friday night and Saturday right. morning. But but after that training, the rabbi changed his protocols. He changed culturally. Uh, and, you know, in the Jewish community, preservation of life means everything. And right. so he was able to adapt, and he was actually the first person to call, tria, uh, call 911 to get law enforcement there as quickly as possible. And, and Brad, that was directly from your influence of teaching them that, correct? I know, yes, I know, I know you're humble about this, but well, let's be clear. Yeah, well, we, we trained them. I trained them. Yes, sir. Right. And, but it was, and, it was that influence that, that made a big difference. So I, 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 I well, just want to. Well, thank you, sir. But I want to believe when, once somebody does this training, they, they have to make up their own mind and their own, uh, you know, set of standards to go by, and and fortunately for us, uh, the rabbi did change and yeah. and and did have his cell phone. And and what we do now is we actually do 
a lot of presentations on the tree of life. And in fact, I did training this afternoon where I did the tree of life uh, uh, kind of case example and lessons learned. Mm-hmm. And, and for us in the community, it's so important. We will never forget the 11 people that were brutally murdered that day. We will right. never forget that. But in the Jewish community, we need to flip the narrative and we need to learn from what happened there. And we need to learn why so many people lived. And so what we have done is we have taken witness testimonials of people that were trained and survived. And they talk about that. He, based on my training, I originally got on the ground. I knew that wasn't the right thing to do. I got up and I left. From the training, I knew that I can get behind a room. I'm going to hide. I'm going to lock the door, whatever it is. I'm not going to get out until I feel it's safe to get out or I get rescued. So now we talk all over the country and nationally on what did we learn from that. And we can't control actions of every human being. We can't stop in America. I mean, this is... You know, this is a this is a nation that has more guns than anybody. We right. have a, a Second Amendment, and this is not a gun talk. So, we have to be prepared, and so we can't control what other people do. All we can do, and all we really have control over, of is how much we prepare our community, and that's really what the program's about: is preparedness of our congregants, of our communal organizations, and in. Give them the tools necessary. If something bad happens, how do I react? Can I save my life? And it's, it's, and you know this as well as I do. It's so surprising when, when you talk statistics on who lives, who dies, and movement. Movement is key in this training. And that's what we try to educate our community on. And so now, as doing this nationally with the Secure Community Network, that's really our goal is to educate the entire community across the country, standardize security programs, standardize our training, standardize our assessments to give our community the best chance possible that if we're attacked, they can survive. And that's really our goal. And that's a that's an impressive goal to have. And then uh, you should be commended for doing that because, uh, I mean, Every every uh, building of faith, uh, center of worship, is vulnerable nowadays. Target nowadays, but um, I oh, think it's it's safe to say there, there's no more targeted community than 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 the Jewish community. No, and, and you're absolutely right. Yes, sir. Yeah, I and I will I will tell you when I did when I started the federation in Pittsburgh. It was important to us. It was important to the Jewish Federation because we were probably the only group in Pittsburgh at the time that really thought about security in our houses of worship. And so we trained. And so I found myself, I, you know, I, I am born and raised a Roman Catholic. I, I work for a Jewish organization now for the last three and a half years. I couldn't be prouder to work for any organization. The Jewish community is a wonderful community. I I so love serving the Jewish community, but this is almost the, the start of a bad joke. I found myself on Good Friday <laughs> as a Catholic working for a Jewish organization, doing active shooter training in a mosque. <laughs> and and as I said that, and that's how I started out that particular training session, 
for a, a, a group of folks <laughs> who I, I ended up training a couple of times, and they thought it was hilarious. But they appreciated <laughs> that training. And, you know, the Muslim community, another targeted community. Yeah. What, you know, yeah. we want to help all communities out uh, to make them feel safe. And it's really a sad day, and it's a sad commentary that we have to prepare communities, not just the Jewish community, but all faith-based communities, that we have to prepare people to think about safety when they go in and pray. You know, I couldn't agree more, Brad, and, and I, I know in my, my church that I'm a part of here in, in the Atlanta community, uh, because of what I do, <clears throat> same as because of what you do, you, you get to be the one asked to um, <clears throat> assist with all these things. Um, we have armed uh, security and armed police at our at our uh, campus, and um, for the most part, that's that's welcome. There's there's always a few um, people in the congregation that wish that didn't happen to happen. Uh, but I, I always thought that that uh, in everything we do, security wise, and I'd like to get your take on this. I feel like the houses of worship are the most challenging places to provide security. Because it's also the place that you truly want to be welcoming to anyone that wants to enter. Absolutely. I think, you know, when I first started doing the training in the Jewish community, my very first slide was open yet secure. And how do you do that? Open and welcoming yet secure. And, you know, you think about a a group of people, no matter what faith it is, sitting in that pew, sitting in that sanctuary, facing uh, the rabbi, the priest, the reverend, the imam, whoever that person is, and they're all looking for that that guidance, the the spirituality of it, and you're the most vulnerable when you when you go there, right? You should feel completely relaxed. And but yet we need to have those folks in the back of the room that are willing to look out the doors that that provide that security. And boy, it was so hard for us to change that 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 culture of security, especially in our houses of worship and our synagogues. You know, because you always hear that hey, we we want to keep our doors unlocked and and we want to be open and welcoming, but it's our right to lock a door. You could still be open and welcoming with a locked door. Absolutely. And we talk all the time about access control and how important it is. And, you know, at night when you go to bed, do you lock your door in your front house? I hope everybody does. I mean, I know there's a day where we all kept our doors unlocked, right? You and (laughs) I grew up probably – yeah, yeah, we, we probably grew up and our doors were unlocked. I know mine was growing up as a kid, but we don't live in that world anymore, unfortunately. Right. And 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 we need to think about our sanctuaries as our home, and to protect our homes. Um, and we need to do that, and we need to really create that conscious culture of security. Unfortunately, even in our houses of worship. Yes, I agreed. Well, Brad, you're doing uh, an incredible job. Um, you certainly are answering a calling. Um, I think it's safe to say that. Uh, I hope you feel that. I, I feel for you that that's what you're doing. Uh, I think there's no better example of someone that, that saw what they wanted to do at 15 years old, followed that path, created incredible opportunities and successes, did some 
incredible things that, that, that the average person does not even fathom what those in law enforcement do. And now, here in your second career, if you will, you're, you're doing such incredible work. And uh, on behalf of all the people that are learning from what you're teaching, you know, thank you. Uh, I, thank I, you, sir. I appreciate what you're doing, and I and I can't thank you enough for taking time with us today. I know you've you've got to go train some more people, but um, any any final thoughts that you can give people directions on what they should just be prepared for? Well, yes, sir. And, and one, thank you very much for having me. And and, and second, look, it's it's all about incredible situational awareness, being aware of your surroundings, thinking about security. I I. I am not the individual that overreacts. I am the individual that wants to prepare people. And as we do these trainings, we don't try to scare people. Our goal is to empower our community, empower all faith-based communities to take security seriously, think about it, have a plan, reduce it to writing, share it with your congregants, practice the plan, share it with law enforcement. That's the way I think we'll keep everybody safe. That's incredible. That's incredible, Brad. Thank you so much, uh, and thank everybody else for taking time to, to tune in. And if you'd like to give us some feedback on this interview or share some, some of your experiences, then please email us at risktakers at chesleybrown.com. Um, thank you for spending time looking, looking at all our podcasts. And as always, if you'd like some notes or additional episodes, you can go to chesleybrown.com backslash risk takers you'll find it on our website brad thank you so much for your time today i i, I can't wait to uh uh for number one for the pandemic to be over and number two for me to get to pittsburgh and i'm gonna give you a big hug when i see you well, well we have we have a security team down in in atlanta that i'll be visiting as soon as we get out of the COVID. I, i'll be sure to look you up sir it's a pleasure to talk to you today love to have you, you have a open invitation here thanks my friend thank you, and sir. have a great day take care you Thanks too. Bye-bye.